HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. On March 17th, everyone is a wee bit Irish. Parades, shamrocks, leprechaun outfits, you get it. They're all representative of St. Patrick's Day. But what about the corned beef and cabbage? We'll speak with Irish-American cookbook author Margaret Johnson today for her views on the food, past and present, today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. Indeed, the patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick, he lived in the 5th century in Britain and Ireland and is credited with bringing Christianity to Ireland and probably responsible in part for the Christianization of the Picts, a tribal people of what is now Scotland, and the Anglo-Saxons. Irish immigrants in America began celebrating the Saint's Feast Day even before the town of Dublin, in this, well, as far as parades go. In the 1700s, well, there was the very first parade in Boston in the mid-1700s. And then, of course, New York followed shortly thereafter, later in the 1760s, I believe. And New York boasts the largest parade in the U.S., 150,000 marchers and 2 million spectators. And what might surprise a lot of people is that this large parade is followed, number two, by Savannah, Georgia, whose parade started in the early 1800s, and they now have a week-long cultural festival preceding the, fe- the holiday. I guess the parade just kind of lost sight of what it was all about, and the, so they devoted an entire week-long um, cultural festival. And it's, it, I've not been, but it sounds wonderful. Indeed, there's no shortage of St. Patrick's Day celebrations throughout the country. Smaller towns that you wouldn't imagine have parades and go out in force to celebrate this. It's a fun celebration and a fun holiday. And it's really no wonder, because 
last census that we got, that I saw that had a separation, 2011 U.S. census, about 34.5 million people in the United States claimed Irish heritage. That's more than seven times the population of Ireland itself. But what about the food? And indeed, the food that accompanies not the Irish food, but the food that we associate with Ireland and the food that we usually find on this day in the United States. My guest today can definitely talk about that and define some of our our associations and where they came from. Margaret McGlue Johnson grew up in Massachusetts in a typical Irish-American family. Both sets of grandparents and great-grandparents were born in Ireland, so talks and tastes of the old country always played a major role in her life. She finally visited Ireland in 1984 and was hooked. From that year forward, the former English and journalism teacher decided that her love of cooking and passion for Ireland would be her life's work. She's the author of 11 cookbooks, including the Flavors of Ireland series, uh, Tea and Crumpets, and the Irish Pub Cookbook, to name a couple. Her food, uh, she has written for, for a lot of food and travel magazines, both here in the U.S. and in Ireland. And she has a website called theirishcook.com. So it is with great pleasure and anticipation that I welcome Margaret Johnson. Welcome, Margaret. Well, thank you for having me. I, you know, I did hear you speak into a presentation several years ago on one of your books, and it was the, you'll have to help me out, I don't have the title for me, the puddings and the tarts and the... Oh, right. Irish puddings, tarts, crumbles, and fools. Oh, it was, it was terrific and delicious, I might add. Well, thank <laughs> but, you. Um, and I had read in, in an interview recently that you did, oh, a couple of years ago, that our beloved corned beef and cabbage is really an American interpretation of an Irish dish. Can you expand on that a little bit? I can. It's something um, I practically have it memorized um, because it's something that comes up pretty much all the time. I do a lot of programs in public libraries and for Irish-American cultural groups and so on and events similar to the one where we met, and it is... um, a big question. <laughs> and I do have a little something that I can simply read. I won't uh, read the entire uh, history, but it starts with the fact that um, corned beef and the, and the word corn actually refers to the coarse grains of salt that uh, beef was cured in in Ireland. Mm-hmm. However, that beef did not stay in Ireland. It was exported from places like Cork and Dublin, where people could afford it. And unfortunately, in Ireland, most people could not afford it because it, uh, obviously, the Irish population was uh, somewhat poor, I would have to say. I guess we all can um, relate to that. So anyway, cows, if they were owned at all, they were raised predominantly for their dairy products. So corned beef was exported. Now, fast forward to the U.S., and uh, when so many Irish immigrants immigrants came here, they did find something that was similar to their bacon, boiling bacon, which was also a cured uh, pork. 
And that's what the Irish used to eat, would be bacon and cabbage, not corned beef and cabbage. Ah. When they came here, they found that uh, many people were eating brisket, which was also boiled the way that their bacon was boiled and uh, served with potatoes and cabbage and so on. So it really um, came to be that the Irish just really discovered corned beef here in America with many of their immigrant neighbors, including many of their Jewish neighbors who were boiling brisket. You know, brisket is a very popular cut of beef and um, very popular in in kosher cooking. Mm -hmm. So that is the the basis from my understanding, and it's one of those things, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, it sounds good to me, and, <laughs> and it makes for good radio. And it, I mean, it's true that um, I've had many Irish uh, cooks as guests on my show, and mm-hmm. and they've always, you know, said, well, we don't eat corned beef and cabbage. And now they do, but I mean, that was not something that was traditionally, it was not, you wouldn't find it in Ireland. No, and not that, at all. And I also used uh, uh, add this to my um, little presentations that I give. I did grow up in Massachusetts, as you pointed out, and we ate corned beef and cabbage a lot, not only on St. Patrick's Day. We ate it, oh, sometimes we might even have it for Easter. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a, um, you know, a holiday meal to us. And, of course, in, in Massachusetts and parts of New England, it's called a New England boiled dinner. Mm-hmm. And corned beef, um, again, would be the brisket that my family would uh, buy from the local butcher who would corn his own in a very simple brine of seven cups of water to one cup of salt. That's it. Mm-hmm. And I gave a presentation yesterday, as a matter of fact, and I saw the people in the audience scurrying to write that down. And I said, <laughs> it's not that hard. Seven cups of water, one cup of salt, you put the brisket in for 24 hours, you know, drain the water, et cetera, and then um, cook it the next day. So it was a very mild cure and probably similar to the flavor of bacon, even though I know pork and and beef have, of course, completely different tastes. But when it's boiled like that in a, in a very uh, simple brine, it, it's... It has a very uh, similar taste. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned something that you know that they couldn't. That the cows were um, the were raised for dairy. The beef was raised as dairy, for dairy cows, and the immigrants coming to this country were all, you know, quite poor. Particularly in the in the the early eighteen hundreds during the time of the potato famine. Um, so you think about it: a boiled dinner like that with cabbage, a big head of cabbage, which was always available and and relatively cheap, uh, you know, that could feed a lot of people over a number of days. So A lot of people. Yeah. And also, it was the same way that Irish stew is one of those slow-cooking, long-cooking um, ways to get the best that you can out of maybe a cheap cut of, of meat, mm-hmm. and you could put it over the, the fire, uh, over the hearth very easily. So it was... It's just that method of cooking also that was very conducive to that that, that type of, uh, of food. Right. And, of course, you know, not that the Irish uh, were the only ones who did that, but it was it's always attributed to Irish cooking, you know, the, as you say, the, the poor cuts of, of meat that were cooked for a long time, and particularly lamb, a mutton, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, mutton is not eaten quite as much any longer, but lamb is very, very, very popular. Uh, probably, I would say the most popular uh, meat in Ireland. And now it's lambing season, and that, of course, is 
what brings us to eating, you know, a lot of lamb at, you know, the Easter at time Easter, and, uh-huh. and in, in the spring. So Right. Interesting. Well, these Irish who came to America, as I mentioned, were primarily very poor, um, mm-hmm. did a lot of jobs, almost, you know, like um, equivalent to uh, the slave population, where they did so many jobs that were harsh work, were owned by their owner, by the, you know, the the landowners, work that other people didn't want to do. So the food was very basic, the food, and the cooking was very was very plain. Um, I guess that's the, the long-held impression that many people have of Irish food and Irish cooking, and we can dispel some of that later on in the show. Um, but what about some of the other dishes that we associate with Ireland, Irish people, and certainly St. Patrick's Day, soda bread, for instance. Yes, soda bread. That is was actually the that's the topic that I deal with um, in these presentations I've been doing this month. Um, I call it the sweet side of Ireland, and I use soda bread as the uh, the, the genesis of some other um, sweet dishes that we have now. Soda bread in Ireland is the traditional brown soda bread, which a lot of Americans. They've never eaten. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. They think that when you say soda bread, it's the sweet cake-like soda bread that is on every, uh, in every bakery and in every supermarket bakery. This, you know, this time of year, often they, studded with raisins or something. Yes, yeah. raisins and caraway seeds. Right. Yes, that was originally called spotted dog. And it was a sweet cake. Um, it had a couple of other names. One was Kearney cake. I don't know the um, the origin of, of that name. But that's what, again, Americans associate with soda bread. So I make um, a brown soda bread, which has just four ingredients, and I show them the ingredients. Just buttermilk, baking soda, salt, and flour. Mm. And that was; those were all simple ingredients. There was no yeast because uh, yeast just did not work well with the very fine, uh, finely milled Irish flour. So that soda bread is often very foreign to Americans. They just they don't get it. But of course, if you go to Ireland, that's you know from your breakfast basket of breads right through to lunch and dinner, you are going to be offered that brown soda bread. So I, I show people that, and I, and I make a loaf, and they taste it, and it's a revelation. And then I move on to the sweeter one, which is the more um, commonly um, uh, found here, which is more commonly found here. Mm-hmm. And then I, I do a couple of little desserts also that have some other ingredients in it, like oatmeal, make these little cakes with Guinness in them, and so on. So I try to show the evolution of the soda bread. But that was a simple, simple four-ingredient um, recipe, and it also could be cooked over the hearth, um, cooked in a, a cast iron skillet or on an iron. On, it was called a heron iron, and it was a, kind of a, a grate that you could put not over the fire but next to the fire so that the heat would bake it. So these are some you know traditions that have evolved into some of the things that we, we eat now right. and we do associate so much with Ireland. Well, 
It's interesting because the when the potato finally made it from the New World to Ireland, people people are always astounded when you know one tells them that that no potatoes didn't originate in Ireland, even right. though they, they think they did. They're a New World food, and they and they made it to Ireland, and and the Irish, uh, you know, went with it, and they and they farmed a lot of potatoes till the there was a a. Uh, what a virus, I guess, that set in. Yeah, the uh, blight, yeah. The blight, blight. right. Um, but many of the dishes that they do give us from, you know, the, the um, their wonderful love of potatoes and use of potatoes have made it to America and are associated with, with Irish, the Irish and are made quite frequently here, um, including, of course, mashed potatoes, any mashed potato dish, shepherd's pie and kolkanen. Mm-hmm. Um, the shepherd's pie in particular, I mean, that, well, I mean, just the name, you can, you, you get image, you know, draws up images of, of, you know, a shepherd sitting by the, on the hillside. But I would assume that that was originally made with lamb. Yes. And that is another misnomer that I try to correct. Um, it is, shepherd's pie is a dish that should be made with ground, or they call it minced lamb. Mm-hmm. Cottage pie is the ground beef or minced beef version. Mm-hmm. All the other ingredients are exactly the same. And probably, I'm going to say, 75 to 80% of everyone who makes a shepherd's pie makes it with beef, which, is, again, it's not really, not really true. Mm-hmm. It's not correct. But the mashed potato topping is obligatory, of course, and it, when you think about the ingredients you get, you get beef or lamb, carrots, you get vegetables, you get a delicious gravy, if you will, in there. It's just, that's another quintessential Irish dish, and it's, I'm not sure who really came up with the idea of the mashed potato topping, um, but whoever did, it was, I think, a great invention. It was certainly and- a great invention, <laughs> right? And then in Colcannon, we get, you know, the, the potatoes and the cabbage, and talk a little bit about that. I've talked about that before on the show, but it's been so long. We need another discussion on Colcannon. Yes, Colcannon, you know, was originally made with kale, which, of course, is now the darling of uh, everyone's diet these days. That's People right. <laughs> who, who never ate kale before uh, have discovered uh, through all kinds of, you know, kale smoothies and whatever that it is such a great, um, it has such great nutrients in it and so on. But it was originally made with kale. So if you were to make it now, you make it, uh, you would... Um, boil the potatoes separately as if you were going to make mashed potatoes and cook the kale or the cabbage. A lot of people do still make it with cabbage. Boil that separately and just mix them together with a huge pat of butter, of course, and um, cream or milk. And it's basically just mashed potatoes with either cooked kale or cooked cabbage. It also serves, you know, as a wonderful side dish for any kind of meat, so it wouldn't necessarily have to be... um, you know, pork or lamb, anything. A steak right. with um, people make it now with uh, into potato cakes, called cannon potato cakes, which are delicious. Boxty is another great um, Irish potato dish that's made with half mashed and half grated raw potatoes. So it's a little bit like a latka, you know, in that it's, then it's fried on a griddle. So there's so many great mashed potatoes dishes, and you can get. <laughs> At one meal, oftentimes, uh, in, and I'm 
talking about, you know, high-end restaurants also that serve three different kinds of potatoes with your meal. Boiled, mashed, baked, those are called jacket potatoes, um, and maybe a little potato cake. So So, it's just probably the most popular and versatile ingredient in any any particular dish. So it's kind of the obligatory side dish, right? To the Absolutely, <laughs> the, yes, yes. But the, the colcannon to me, dish. right, and the colcannon to me is, is like the ultimate comfort food. You know, it's got oh, the, the yes. long-cooked cabbage and the flavors just all melding together. It just, it, it, to me, that's, that, that's, that's it. That's it. And a lot of people who say, I don't like cabbage, still like colcannon. Right. Because it's not so, you know, in your face. It's a very subtle combination of the potato and the cabbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, finely shredded, though. Well, you you did write a book on pub food as well, but Irish pub food, but something that has um, come to America from the Irish pubs is the black and tan, for better or for worse. Some people love it. Some people, you know, say, no, it shouldn't. You shouldn't make it. But um, the black and tan, however, is is forever, you know, in on our tavern menus, our pub menus, and explain, and we, we do think of that as being Irish, explain what that is. You mean the drink? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, okay, because in, in my, one of my cookbooks, I have a recipe for black and tan brownies. Oh, I was going to say, a cake, I've, I've heard of the cakes as well, but I didn't see your brownie recipe. Yeah. Yes. But yes. where it came well, from was, drink, was a drink. The drink, of course, right? is, yeah. is named uh, for a very uh, reviled a group of British soldiers who um, wore black and tan uniforms, mm-hmm. and um, it's a drink where uh, made with uh, ale on the bottom and Guinness on top. So, but when you pour the Guinness on top, you have to pour it over a spoon so that it doesn't uh, it gets a little diversion when it goes into the glass. So it will sit on top of the ale. So you sort of froth it before you put it in the glass yes, there, right? exactly. Yeah. Well, you just pour it gently, and they actually make little spoons that you can hang over your pint glass. And when you pour it, and then it, it as I say, the Guinness diverts and um, doesn't make a direct hit into the ale. Otherwise, it wouldn't, it wouldn't separate like that. <laughs> well, you know, all these foods, which now we relate to uh, um, comfort food and and they are truly Irish American in derivation. I mean, in in um, actuality, the derivation might be on something Irish, but there. But it really is Irish American cooking, and Irish cooking has gotten a pretty bad rap, or had a bad rap um, over the past years. And you discovered firsthand um, about that, and we are going to talk about that when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. 
It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains. But when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. It also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Drink for the dust and the dirt and sing with me. Hi, we're back, and we've been talking about St. Patrick's Day and parades and food, and my guest is Margaret Johnson, and she's an Irish-American cook and cookbook author. And, uh, Margaret, you you know, it's it, we talked about um, Colcannon coming from a, 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 the British uniforms of, of the hated soldiers, and in fact, St. Patrick's no, the, Day... that was the black and tan. I mean, the black and tan, right. Yeah. Uh, black and tan, right? Yeah. Get my cookies straight here. That's um, okay. <laughs> the, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, St. Patrick's Day started, you know, the, um, the celebrations in America, the Irish who were here in America started so early. Well, and again, no surprise, because there were so many Irish, but also because we shared this, um, I guess, battle, if you will, against the British. And so there was sort of a natural uh, celebration of, of uh, celebrating your Irishness to, to uh, combat the British strongholds. And uh, it, it just amazes me that there are so many celebrations and parades um, across the country. And as I said, Ireland had for a long time a bad rap when it came to cuisine, uh, to, you know, uh, fine cooking. And that has certainly turned a corner, as as many of the um, famed chefs and restaurateurs from Ireland can uh, can attest to, and our testimony to. And you first visited in 1984. Um, tell us a little bit about some what you saw at that time, some of the changes that have occurred, and, and your impressions of the food today. Well, in 1984, I did not go seeking anything other than my Irish roots. Um, food was not not on my list of, of things to do. Um, I had my, my husband and my children. Uh, we had it as a family vacation, so we just did all sorts of touristic things. And again, food was not on my uh, on my agenda. We ate, you know, fried fish, and the kids ate cheese toasties, which the equivalent to a grilled cheese sandwich, and just, you know, things, what was presented to us, that's what we ate. And we did find a McDonald's in the middle of of, um, O'Connell Street in Dublin, so that actually made the trip for them. (laughs) So it wasn't really initially um, part of my my, uh, thought process. I was just an Irish-American going to Ireland. And it wasn't until maybe five or six years later that I became more and more involved in um, Irish things, Irish history, Irish literature, and so on. And then it finally dawned on me that maybe the things that I was uh, reading about in terms of food was really striking a chord with people everywhere. They were they were beginning to talk more about um, the new Irish cuisine. Uh, I read it, and I can't actually remember what publications it was, but maybe like maybe a magazine like Irish America magazine or something like that. So I thought, gee, I really want to, I don't want to 
say get on this bandwagon, but I, I want to maybe do something to promote this idea. So I thought maybe I'll, I'll write a cookbook and I'll ask some chefs in Ireland if they'd like to help me prove to the American people that really there's more to Irish cooking than just a boiled potato, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that's how I just then dove into it and I investigated every possible aspect that I could. And that's how I became so interested in Irish food. And of note, I wrote my first Irish cookbook in 1992, and it was from recipes that were contributed by Irish chefs who were so happy to to say, yes, Margaret, let me help you. Let me send you a recipe and, and you know, basically tell people that this is what's going on now. So the, there were all sorts of wonderful recipes that although used traditional Irish ingredients, but just did a few new things to them, let's say, back in 1992. And it really wasn't until 1996 that Irish food was given any sense of credibility, and it was when Bon Appetit magazine, who used to do um, their special collector's editions every May, and they would devote the entire issue to the food of one country. And in 1996, they devoted it to Ireland. And that is really what put Ireland on the map and uh, helped me actually start my cookbook career in, in the U.S. And it wasn't until the next year, I might add, 1997, when the first really glossy food and wine magazine was published in Ireland. Yes. So 1997. And when you think about some of the food magazines, you know, that we have in the U.S., Gourmet was 75 had, years right. old. <laughs> right. You know? And so that's just how it evolved. And, you know, today, just, you know, you, you would be... Sh- hard-pressed not to find fabulous food in the smallest places in Ireland. Right. Everybody's a foodie now. Everybody's right. a foodie, it seems. Well, it's true, and they have, um, they do have a lot of wonderful um, culinary ambassadors who help to spread the word, and certainly Darina Allen, who's been on the show several times, oh, right. and yes. she runs a wonderful school, the Ballymaloo, mm-hmm. with her daughter-in-law, and... Um, and Claudia McKenna, she's been on with me too. She's, you know, we have all these people who, uh, not to mention all the the, the myriad chefs uh, that are are just doing wonderful things and and are a wonderful uh, advertisement for the things to be found there. You think of the dairy alone. I mean, the dairy is just fabulous. They have a, oh. such a, a wealth of of wonderful goods, right? Yes, absolutely. And I'm I'm only sorry that more. Irish farmhouse cheeses cannot come to America or do not come to America. Some of them, you know, they're such they're done in such small uh, they're produced in such small lots that they really they, they couldn't it wouldn't wouldn't probably be cost effective for them to to export them. But I mean, in Ireland, there now are there must be thirty five, maybe even forty really, really fabulous Irish farmhouse cheesemakers. And these are literally made on farms, and it's not just a little um, catchphrase. So those things also are getting to be renowned worldwide. And in places in Europe, though, you'll find Irish cheese in France, and you'll find it in Germany and, and, um, you know, other places where it's so much easier to, to export it. You know, it's just a little... 
hop, skip, and a jump, really. Um, but it's unfortunate we don't have more of it here. Right. I mean, we have Kerrygold cheeses, which yes. are wonderful, but they're not really farmhouse cheeses. Right. But they're made in Ireland, of course, and a great um, example of what you can get in the dairy field. Mm-hmm. Now, your books, I mean, you have 11 different books, but they are, they're all on Irish food and the and the cooking of Ireland and not really so much as you say you change a little of the process but they're Irish ingredients so they're not it's not Irish American cooking correct no no it isn't really no not at all um and the tea book the afternoon tea book which is titled tea and crumpets yes. that was um just i wrote that because i had written five books with chronicle books in San Francisco and they were kind of uh, up against a wall in terms of Irish topics and said to me, Margaret, I don't know if we can really, we have a market for any more Irish books, so why don't you think of something else? And I thought, oh, that's really all I'm I'm interested in is Irish cooking. I'm, I'm Irish-American. I'm not going to write an Italian cookbook or <laughs> um, a book on Thai cuisine. It's just not, you know, you can't inve- reinvent yourself like that. So um, someone suggested, what about tea, afternoon tea? I mean, Irish are huge tea drinkers. So I thought if I wrote something on afternoon tea, I could incorporate Ireland and, you know, the great uh, British traditions as well. So I did take a, a brief diversion um, in that regard. But then I went right back to Ireland after that. And But the Afternoon Tea Book is a very popular book, I have to admit, still quite well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, well, it's just, it's, it's such a pleasure to um, to hear you talk about, um, so cheerfully about the the food and, and your experiences. Do you still give tours and run it when, to Ireland? And I have to say no. Okay. I did one tour, and it was it was it was great. And we went eight women went. It just happened to be women, and um, we had a fabulous time. And it was it was so much work for me to be honest with you. Uh, I just said I don't think I'm ever going to do it again. Oh. <laughs> and and now that I've said that, of course, every time I do a presentation, someone says to me. Do you lead a tour to Ireland, Margaret? And I go, oh, well, I did, but no. No, I think those days are over, too. There's so uh, many. It's the competition for leading a tour is very, very yeah. difficult. You know, there's so many tour operators out there. And and um, I like to do it my way, and I want to stay at the hotels I want to stay at. And sometimes that becomes a little cost prohibitive. So I think I'm just well, better off just going by myself or going with a friend and doing what I want to do. Well, I'm happy that you shared your insights on the food in the country with us on the radio today. We can't make a tour. Um, and people can read all about your books and you and your background on the irishcook.com, your website. So yes, it's just the Irish cook, Linda. Irish, not correct. the. Just okay, irishcook.com. Okay, irishcook.com. Yes. Great. All right. Well, thanks again. And thank you for, for listening. And I'm sure that all of you will be putting on a little bit of green on March 17th and celebrating St. Patrick's Day. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.